new beginning. New beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in again. We always love that uh, you guys are taking and making time uh, to listen to the show and listen to the guests that we have on. It means a lot to us. I know it means a lot to them. So thank you for, for doing that. And also, if you're new to the show, thank you for you know trying us out. I know there's a lot of podcasts out there and we're one in the, I guess, in a, a big pool of podcasts. So hopefully you find this uh, entertaining for you and you learn a little bit about grief and loss and also the journey people go on and hopefully it helps you in your journey as you move forward. Today we have a really special guest. I, uh, I met this gentleman about a year ago and so I'm glad we actually get to have him on and, and chat further about his journey and who he is and what he does. I just learned he was Italian I think so uh, this is going to be a good show. <laughs> so we have Reverend Andrew Vitale. I say that in an Italian accent because he's Italian. <laughs> and then, uh, so anyways, Andrew Vitale is the bereavement coordinator and spiritual counselor for Northern Illinois Hospice. He has been working in spiritual and bereavement care for over 30 years, almost as basically since I was a baby, he's been working in <laughs> spiritual care. <laughs> and uh, also he frequently gives lectures at the University of Aurora and is always uh, is invited to speak regularly at different organizations. Additionally, Andrew is on the planning committee for the International Conference on Death, Grief, and Bereavement at the University of Wisconsin, uh, La Crosse. And this conference is actually coming up really soon, probably about two-week time uh, on June 3rd to 6th. So we're going to talk about that conference, uh, and hopefully you guys are able to go. If not, there's always next year. It's an amazing conference, and we'll talk further about that. So welcome, Andrew, to the podcast. Thanks, Josh. Glad to be here. Hey, so... uh, (laughs) We met at the podcast. We, you know, we met at the uh, the conference last year. It was my first time there, and you know, I gotta say it, it blew my mind in the sense of how different it was and what I thought it would be. And can you like give us some understanding of maybe like what the conference is about and like how it started and how before, you gotta be a be- part of it? Before I even go that far, what what was so different about it that you weren't prepared for? Just out well, of I met, curiosity. I met you, of course. Well, of course. <laughs> but other than just me. Well, other than you, I think it was the, I would say the friendly environment that was there. Okay. Like, and the, it wasn't, and the talks were a lot different than what I accustomed to in the academic, uh, in academic field. So it was more hands-on uh, approach, more practical stuff. And, but I think it's just the, the way people that came in there were so kind to each other and everyone spoke to everyone. There was no like cliques or groups, like everyone was like on a level playing field. And so I think what I loved most is making the connections, you know, making friends, uh, for being, I didn't know anyone there going in. And yet, you know, at the end of it, I knew so many people I was eating dinner with everyone going on cruises. And, and so like, at the end of it, I'm like, wow, this is more than just for me learning about grief. It was just, you know, me hanging out with a bunch of people in, the, in a similar field um, that are all on the same journey and same path. So that was the, the big takeaway that's different from a lot of other academic conferences I've been to. I'm glad to hear that because I think that's one of the things that we've always prided ourselves on is it's a big conference, but not so massive that you can't talk to everybody you get an opportunity over the course of the week to spend time either either in group or or in like you said at at dinner or when we're cruising down the Mississippi to talk with different people in the field of grief and and dying and a lot of those are your keynote speakers who you may or may not have ever met the big gurus of grief as we like to call them sometimes and we get that opportunity, and instead of them being these keynote speakers that are sort of untouchable in some conferences, they're these human beings who you can have dinner with and, and converse more about life in general. And and I think the conference has always been that way. From, from my very first days back when I was 20-something, when this conference began at King's College in London, Ontario. Shout out to Canada. Um, yep, leave it to Canada. And I always thought originally that it might have just been that Canadian spirit that everybody has. But again, it was an international conference, and that, that feeling that you got last year when you were at the conference has remained with this conference for 
30 plus years. Yeah, I'm saddened that I'm, I won't be able to attend this year just because I'm writing the, uh, my dissertation. I'm on like the final leg. But yeah, it's, it's one of those conferences I'm always going to look forward to in the future and be able to, you know, for me, you know, like people you, you said, like you look up to or you hear a lot about or the friends you've made in the previous years. It's like a way to once a year get back together, see how everyone's doing sure. um, and just hang out. Like we're because I remember we're doing uh, we ate dinner like like there must have been like 50 of us. Right. Like every <laughs> every day in a different uh, restaurants. And then, so you're always sitting beside different people and. Thank you. You said you're right. You take people off the pedestal and they're, they're human beings. They're actually eating food with you. It's not, it's not exactly. like they're just like, exactly. you. And then they uh, sometimes, you know, we're going to have ice cream after too. So it's just like just amazing nightlife atmosphere that, you know, I said it, it takes the human, it puts a human element back into these conferences. Yes. And I think with the subject title, it's good to be able to do that. It's, mm. it's that decompression after a long day of talking about and learning about death, dying, and bereavement. Go down to the Pearl and have an ice cream together. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, That's what go. you're really going to miss, right? <laughs> That's right. Some delicious ice cream. <laughs> and so who, like, who do you market the, the conference to? So if someone's looking to, to come, like, who's, you know, like, who are you marketing to to be able to come and, and learn? We try to keep it as broad as possible. This year's conference, um, each each year I should say has a has a different theme. Um, this year's happens to be on resilience, and it has that little subtitle of of helping ourselves and those we serve to become more resilient. And those that we really sort of target or try to target are palliative care providers, uh, the folks who are are working in hospice, the funeral um, service that whole group of folks, program directors, case managers, counselors, uh, clergy, of course, nurses, social workers, educators, individuals dealing with their personal losses. And I think that's one of the neat things about this conference is, as you mentioned, it's not so academic. You have you have your academic presenters, but the majority of presenters at this conference are at a level that everybody can take something away. Um, so we do market to, to those who have, who have had a loss, a significant loss in their own lives. And then again, to the, to the general public. Yeah, it was nice. It's nice. Wow. That it's, it's open to so many people and even the bereave himself can go. And I, uh, I had the opportunity to actually present uh, last year and that's how I sort of end up going. And yeah, it's, uh, the response was really amazing on even the topic of grief dreams. And, you know, it was really encouraging. I think, you know, like even just going as sort of an academic, I got a lot of encouragement from a lot of the people that, that went to the talk, uh, even yourself. And so it's just like, it's amazing on, you know, what it can do for your, your own journey. Um, not only making friends, but realizing you know, what you're doing is important. And you guys really offer that, you know, that space for, for people to gain that. Yes. And, and I think, I think I caught, I don't know if I hit the tail end of yours or if I was presenting at the time, same time you were. I think you might've been because I, I don't remember. remember. <laughs> I remember, uh, yeah, a couple of people were saying that they're coming to mine and they felt really bad. They couldn't go to yours because they liked you so much. You know, like, it could have been like, the same time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> same time. Uh, but and and you like, have to make those kind of tough decisions. In, in I know life. See, that's that, that's the hard part. I, like, it's be, just because I said like you have those keynotes, but then you have a choice of three um, in between. And so it gives you that, you know, like which one I had some of those where it's like, who do I? Because I didn't know anyone really. So I didn't right. know like who were the big wigs who weren't. So I'm like basing just on, you know, their talk outline. But I'm like, man, I wish I could go to like both of these talks. <laughs> but the one and, person. And sometimes you get, you get torn between some of those too. Yeah. Yeah. It's very true. And you're like, I wonder what I missed. You know, <laughs> that's what you leave with, you know, <laughs> it's funny. I remember the one person I saw was absolutely amazing. It was, uh, and you have him as a keynote speaker this year is uh, Harold Ivan Smith. Love him. Oh man, yeah. Like <laughs> he was just the way he presents um, was was refreshing. Like it was very funny, entertaining. He had a lot of stories. They had like so much knowledge at the same time. I was like, wow, you know, like this was, you know, like 
I wish, you know, like as I move forward to sort of be in that space where it's just like that free flowing and that, you know, and it, that engaging to the audience because he's, yeah, definitely a mentor to, uh, to look up to and how to speak. And, and that is what, what you heard in, in his presentation is what you get in real life. I mean, that's just Harold Ivan. He's wonderful. All right. And so it's coming up in, in two weeks, you know, <laughs> so I'm glad you were able to get you on. To, yeah. A couple of weeks, yeah, right? Yikes. It is two I weeks. know. Are you ready for that or what? Are you, are you no, <laughs> got a lot to do before then. <laughs> That's funny. So I'm glad you were able to come on and talk about it. And is there, is there any, um, anything else you'd want to like just uh, touch on when it comes to the conference? Um, again, I think the, the main thing is if folks are interested in the topic, it's not, it's not a conference that is, is overly heady, although at the end of day two, uh, it's not uncommon to, at, at any conference to, to feel like your head is filled with as much as it can take and you just need a little downtime to, sort, to start to process everything that you've you've been listening to and sharing in but but i i would hope that it's it's such a i'm trying to find the right words um i've been i've been going to this conference since i was since i was 20 um when it first started and i think it started maybe a year before i i started going so i it's sort of in my blood now and it's it's been interesting to see how I first attended as a poor college student <laughs> who couldn't afford to get there, let alone you know pay for a pay for a registration fee. And at that time, um, Dr. Jack Morgan, who put this whole conference on and facilitated it, and pulled all of his friends and colleagues together to do such an outstanding job for all these years mentioned to me because I called him and said, hey, Andrew Vitale. I, th I might have been an Andy back then. I'm not sure. I changed my name when I went to grad school. And I said, Dr. Morgan, I would love to go to this conference. I've, I, I want to be part of hospice care. I'm working in hospice currently, but I don't have that kind of money. And he basically said, if you can get to King's College, I will put you to work on staff and you can still attend conferences and, and breakout sessions that you want to. And that was the beginning of this whole turnaround some 30 years later, 40 years later, as long as this conference has been going on. And we fight about that every year to see how long it's been. Nobody can re really truly remember. <laughs> um, there's got to be some archives somewhere. But to go from from this this college student who's up there working so that I can get to know more about death and dying to now for the last almost 10 years sitting on the steering committee of the same conference so it's it's been interesting for even for me to do that big round circle on how things happen in our lives wow it's amazing it's amazing so like you had that moment where someone offered compassion, you know, to you and understood your circumstances and allowed you to come to sort of take part in something that you really wanted to do. And here you are now, right? So it's, it's amazing how life works out and now you're helping the next generation, uh, feel welcome at the conferences. And, you know, so I think it's, uh, yeah, it's definitely amazing and it's amazing. It's been going on so long. And then do you know why it moved from Canada to the U S it actually moved from Canada at Kings shortly after Jack died. Um, and it was Gary Cox at the University of Wisconsin La Crosse um, who who made a promise to Jack and said that it would continue. So he carried the the legacy and the torch to the University of Wisconsin in La Crosse, and that is where it's been since then. Wow, that's amazing. No, that's really cool. And his name was Jack, right? You're saying who Jack Morgan. It? Yep. Yeah, Jack Morgan. I wonder if anyone's ever had a grief dream about him before the conference, you know, like <laughs> every year. That I don't know. That'd be an interesting question. <laughs> it's a good question, though. <laughs> a lot of people worked with, with Jack. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, see, Gary, right? Gary would probably be the, the first one I'd ask. <laughs> ask <laughs> yeah, him. I should. I should get him on the podcast, yeah. 
get him on. He would he would be a good one. Cool. Yeah, I'll have to invite him. All right. So uh, we talked about the conference. Amazing. So people, check it out if you can't go this year. It's every year. So you know, hopefully, um, maybe next year you can set that intention and and save up to go on that trip. Now, looking at your own journey. So as a poor college student <laughs> looking to be a reverend, how did that come about before, you know, for you to go down that path? Um, that's a good question. It was actually while I was on break um, from being in the seminary that I was doing my clinical pastoral education at Emory University in Atlanta. I was in the hospital and at at Eggleston Children's Hospital, which now has a new name, I believe, but it's still the Children's Hospital. I was oncology, and in in doing all of that is where I saw a big poster for the International Death, Dying, and Bereavement Conference, and I went, wow, I want to go to that, and that started the whole story. Wow. So you're already in the seminary school, and then you decide to then, you know, with that change your focus to sort of death and, and bereavement. And and I don't know what it was. Somewhere along the way, part of my, my pastoral plan, even in school, was I, I did 30 hours of, of hospice training because I, I was intrigued with hospice care. And that got me bit by that hospice bug. And I have been in and around hospice work ever since, with the exception of a couple of years that I took off when I was in downtown Atlanta and was an executive chef. <laughs> There's something new that you didn't know, did you? No, I didn't. Wow. So you, can, <laughs> you can cook too, eh? I can cook too. Why are we going out to these restaurants when you could just make us all, 50 of us, uh, uh, you know, a dinner because yourself? Because it's nice to be treated. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Wow. So it's amazing that, you know, one poster really, you know, it shifted your career into exactly. something new. Wow. That's fascinating. And so, you know, I'm curious, you know, what does a spiritual counselor like actually do at a hospice? I have ideas, but I don't know exactly what you guys. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and I have that fun hyphenated name here um, for the simple reason that when I was brought on board, um, they had a, actually they had a part-time chaplain here at hospice. And they had just hired another part-time. So they wanted somebody specifically for bereavement, which was really my field. And But I had the, the pastoral background. So they said, long story short, they actually called me the morning of my first interview and said, oh, we posted the job in error. And I went, excuse me? Um, the position is only a part-time position. We're sorry we put it as, as a full-time. Do you still want to come in this afternoon? And I said, yeah, I'm going to come in, and I'm going to justify this position going full-time. And she just sort of choked on her words and went, uh, uh, like like I couldn't do that. And I went in, and after five hours of interviews with the powers that be, I landed a full-time job. They gave me the hyphenated word so that if either of our part-time chaplains were not able to make it to an inter interdisciplinary team meeting, that I could sit in under bereavement and chaplaincy um, so that we would have both both groups covered for our, for our IDT meetings. Oh. So as you say, what do they do? It's basically a chaplain for our hospice patients and their families. Amazing. But you focus more on the bereavement aspect of it until I, I am probably 95% bereavement. <laughs> um, I, I do a little chaplaincy here and there, even though, you know, my, my bereavement work is, is sacred work because I'm, I'm charged with, as I like to say, picking up the pieces and trying to put lives back together after a death. One of the things that I think you and I talked about that we wanted to, when you first called me about the podcast, which, by the way, I now appreciate podcasts, now that you taught me what they were and how to find them. <laughs> um, I think when you first contacted me, 
I was, we were in, Northern Illinois Hospice was in the throes of um, having one of our own nurses die. So we had one of our own staff members die. And it was the first time that it ever happened here in this agency. So we were trying to piece that whole together and make sense of that for us. And it was a hard time for everybody, especially for myself. And they were looking to me to sort of lead this group through the muck to make sense of everything. And six months prior to that, to to her death, they asked, she and her, her fiancé at the time, um, asked if I would officiate their wedding. Mm-hmm. So I got to know them even closer and more intimately. And then six months later, I was asked to preside at her funeral. Wow. Um, so it was a it was a tough time for me. It was a tough time for for the staff to to try to make sense of it. Let alone the the human side of it, being well now we're one nurse shy, mm-hmm. and who's going to take all of Amy's patients? And now we got to pull together even stronger as a team to to make sure that we're giving the best possible support to not only our patients, but our patients' families. Mm. It was a trying time. We came through. We came through triumphantly, I might say. That's beautiful. Quite well. That's beautiful to hear. And it, but you're right. It's, you know, we don't really talk about, you know, we talk about, you know, being a bereavement coordinator or, you know, helping uh, the patients. But like when someone in your team dies, that's a very interesting set of circumstances that, you know, it's probably a little disenfranchised. People don't, you know, acknowledge it as much as the impact it can have on the full force of your your whole team itself, right? Um, exactly. And how, because what they're going through, but then they also have to deal with other people's grief and they're grieving, you know? It's like a parent yeah. who's trying to deal with, you know, the loss of their daughter when they're also trying to parent the living child. And so how do you, being the one that people look towards, to try to like guide the ship and you're in like you're you're trying to catch breath and swim right in the sea exactly i'm i'm just i'm dipping water up (laughs) yeah how do you do that like how do you stay afloat and help the other people at the same time that was a challenge for me but it came very naturally part of the other thing that i immediately thought of was not only the 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 human aspect that now we have to take these patients that belong to Amy and and they all have to be, you know, basically kind of divvied up among who's left. But we had to explain in kind and loving words to these patients and their families about Amy. So it was it's it's this big this big maze of how do you take care of yourself while you have to take care of the team, while you have to take care of the folks who have been entrusted to you, the patients and their families, and try to make sense of it all. Um, and as you might recall from last year at the international conference, and again this year, crazy Andrew Vitali does the um, the unnotable. So we had mindfulness with Andrew. And again, we're doing mindfulness this year um, at the conference as a way to sort of take the craziness of the given day of the conference and to to just be kind to yourself without without any judgments without any anything outside imposing itself on us and I started teaching um at our weekly IDT meetings here means especially some some uh, mindfulness techniques for the staff that when they felt like they were going from patient to patient to patient to patient with no time to really sit and engage with the patient, but just felt like how how some hospitals sometimes feel. You just go from from one patient to the next patient and and there's no time to connect with the human part of who we are. Mindfulness allowed them to take a whole 30 seconds of their lives, as short as that, um, to to wiggle their toes and just feel the earth below them and and to center themselves 
a little bit before they moved on to the next patient. And I, it's, it's, it's been helpful here so far. I think I have some, some folks who, are, who have bought into it and say, you know, I like this and I do this quite often. And I have others who, who aren't too sure about it, but they, they, they're still doing it. So there must be something to it. Right. And so you're saying that's how you're able to stay grounded um, throughout the storm. That's how I stayed grounded. It's, it's letting those, those feelings and emotions of, of death and dying and all the other ones that, that come their way it's in grief work that when you get attacked, if you will, by all of those feelings and emotions is when I usually hear from, from folks, uh, I thought I was going crazy. Mm. Um, and that craziness is actually all of those feelings and emotions that we can't put our finger on because it's all one big wave of water that's hitting us. So it's by writing them down and taking some time to journal, um, which I also suggested to them, to start writing some of those feelings and emotions. And once you get them written down, it's, it's almost like a, can I say this on the air, like throwing, throwing that pain up. After you throw up, you feel better. But it's getting it down on a sheet of paper so that you can actually see it and, and you begin to have this relationship with these feelings and emotions so that you are now in control of your feelings instead of your feelings and emotions controlling you. Well said. I like that. And it's Thank a, you. <laughs> it's, <laughs> you should be a speaker. <laughs> I guess I probably could. <laughs> no, it's amazing that you've learned that along the way and you're able to share that knowledge with other people. And I think that people look up to you, especially being in the chosen, you know, um, role that you are, people are looking up to you to, to help them out. And so they'll, whatever you suggest, they're going to sort of try out. And so it's nice that you've, you worked on some things yourself to able to offer these suggestions rather than just, you know, you read in a book one day and you said, Oh, I'll just tell them to do this. Right. Like so a lot of people say, right. just go meditate, but they don't really meditate. You know, right. like, they don't know what it is. Exactly. <laughs> right, and, right. and I think that's always been one of my, one of my little mantras is, is I will lead you nowhere where I will not go first. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, even though I've been in hospice work and bereavement work and chaplaincy for as long as I have, I would probably say that reality truly hit me some six years ago when my dad died. And I think, you know, I've had lots of death in my life before that, but it's different when you have a parent or a sibling. And it sort of made made everything that I have been doing for years really come alive for me. And to know that some of the feelings that people have in a, in a deeper way than, you know, a, a grandma or a grandpa or, or an aunt or an uncle. And, and that's not belittling those relationships, but there's something very special about siblings and, and parents. And, and that connection, that bond that we have. So I think I think that was sort of a, a turning point for me as well. Wow, that's really interesting because I thought, like, I never, I always would have thought that, you know, usually most people that come on when they go to the bereavement field, it's like they had a loss prior and they're, you know, they're making meaning and stuff. But yours came sort of after that, that real deep bond with your father that, you know, when he died, it like it hit you like you've never felt before. And you had a new understanding of grief. I think that's really interesting. And so how was that? Could you like just talk us through that experience um, and how it related to you moving forward in the, uh, in the field and in your own life? That's a good question. I don't know if I've really pondered it deeply enough. <laughs> Didn't you journal? It, you told it, me to journal. <laughs> I know. I told you to journal. Uh, I did not journal this go round with my father because I, it, was so, it was so new. It was so different. And I, and I think on top of that, 66 days prior to that, how do we remember numbers? Go talk to the bereaved. They remember everything. 66 days prior to that, my grandmother died, which was my dad's mom. You know what? I just told you that wrong. 66 day to, days after my dad died, grandma died. And grandma had to bury her firstborn. So having both of those so closely connected by you know that that short amount of time, 
again, and I and I part of part of what I think I started to see, and it wasn't. It's, uh, maybe I need to start journaling. You could be right here. Maybe you are the smart one. Um, <laughs> was when I was in in the receiving line for my dad's wake. It was very real. Um, I am the eldest. So it was me, my mom, and my two siblings, and then my father's brothers and sister. And I don't think it ever dawned on me until after we buried my father that they were grieving a brother. It was it was my world. It was I I lost a dad. And and I don't know if my body allowed me to even recognize anybody else losing things other than my mother. So it was very weird for me, I think. Um, and in looking back at it and trying to understand it, I, I apologize to my to my dad's siblings, you know, my uncles and aunts, for you know they were further down the the, the receiving line. But the day of, it didn't even dawn on me that. They were grieving a, a a brother because I was like stuck in my own silo, and I think coming to that understanding and recognizing that months down the road actually was was a was an op- eye opener for me um, in recognizing how people in the same family can grieve differently, which is also part of part of what I do now with with groups. Is you know uh, as I think you said uh, something similar, you know, uh, two parents, a mom and a dad, are gonna are gonna grieve differently over a child because of their their understanding, their relationship with that with that child. Even though it's the same, if you take a picture, it's it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's sort of that aha moment that I got. That I probably, like I said, need to take some more time and and ponder through. I've just been so busy with everything else in my life that I haven't had time to do that, and I probably need to. So thank you for that suggestion, Josh. Hey, it's never. It's been six years, but it's never too late, right? <laughs> I know. I know. But you're right. I think you know, just talking about it, like things come up, and you realize different things as you move forward in your journey, and you can't figure it all out at once. You know, it's it's exactly. one of those. I think that's the beauty of the grief journey is that there's always these little gifts and things that it provides you as you move forward. And so like time is almost irrelevant. It's just like as you move forward and things will trigger certain things for you to look at. And so I think it's great that you can look at this in a, in a different light and realize how you were grieving compared to maybe what you expected you probably would have done in that right. time frame. And, and I think if anybody walks away with anything, it's what you just said, that time does heal. And and we are a people who want things now. We want to go through the the drive-through and get our food immediately. We want that milkshake now. We want to go to Pearl and get our ice cream now. <laughs> but that that's not how grief always works. That sometimes it takes those trigger events or moments down the road that wake you up to another morsel, um, another another aspect of. As I oftentimes tell my my support groups, you have a diamond in the middle of us, and and nobody's look. We're all looking at the same diamond, but we all have a different facet of that diamond. And as we move around the table, you have another facet and a different view of what our grief looks like. And we're just it's that's probably my hardest thing with the majority of folks who are going through grief is they want it done. They want it over. They don't want to take the time to sit with it. And that's that's the frustrating part sometimes. But what's neat is when they finally recognize that it does take time and they give you a call or they write you a letter or they send you an email a year later or two years later and say, hey, um, I remember when you said X, Y, and Z. Um, well, it was a trigger event because I heard my dad's favorite song on the radio. And for whatever reason, I was listening to it just perfectly and it brought back memories and I feel more whole. 
That's nice. And, you know, it's, it's amazing, like I said, like as you're speaking and, you know, I, I'm just reflecting on your journey and how amazing it is to get those responses, you know, like realizing that what you're doing and that you're actually helping people and for them to, you know, a year later to say, hey, you know, I want to thank you. Like that's got to be feel, that feeling must be so rewarding uh, in a job um, where, you know, you get paid. So you're getting paid plus you're getting this, um, you know, like you get paid exactly. plus you get this bonus of people actually appreciating the work you're doing. <laughs> exactly. And and that's one of the, the beauties of hospice care is at least in the bereavement field um, here at Northern Illinois Hospice, um, I follow family members for 13 months after a death um, to make sure that they make it through their firsts. You know, all of those first year anniversary things, um, first Mother's Day, Father's Day, first holidays, first birthdays, and and make sure they're going to be okay during those times. And then to touch bases with them after the ones are over, to, to give them a little more support and to let them know that even though I'm I'm sort of cutting the umbilical cord here, that they're part of the family. And if they do need to, you know, get their little dose again because they, they've done a little backsliding, that's fine. That's that's part of life. And they can always call back. That's nice. And it's beautiful that you're able to do that. And, you know, I said I'm excited for, you know, the work that you are doing because it's, you know, it's very encouraging for me to see people like you out there and helping others, especially, you know, through their difficult times. And I think you're doing a great job um, just because oh, when I met you. you, you just had a good, uh, a good like energy about you. Like you're, you could sit with your suffering, but you also could laugh, you know, at your own suffering. Exactly. <laughs> and, so. and, and that's a good way to put it. I yeah. agree. <laughs> and so I'm curious, curious, as you said, your grandmother died about 66 days after your father. I'm curious about her loss because that's two months, right? Two and a bit. Um, yep, was she was she in deep sorrow like that that whole time and then died? You know, like or did she die happy? You know, like did she ever get to a point where she could be happy? That's a good question. My grandmother was one of those staunch Catholics who, when she was eighty, she died at eighty nine, probably even before she was eighty. When I used to go visit her. At when she was when she was independent and, and in her in her little um, apartment, and and she would be there with with her rosary beads, and she would say to me, "Why am I still here?" You know, granted, I don't think she was, I don't think it was ever a deep depression, mm-hmm. but I think we have that that question of of meaning. What am I here to do now? You know, as we get older and older, we, we question those things sometimes, I think. And and she was at home by herself um, quite often. And she always had rosary beads, as I said. And I really didn't have an answer for her. And then I sort of had this aha moment. And I went back and I knew that she was going to say, why am I still here? And I looked at her and I said, Grandma, you might be here for the simple reason that because you pray so much, you pr- you are praying for those who have no one else to pray for them. Mm-hmm. That is your mission in life. You're doing something that no one else will do. And she bought that. <laughs> and she I, I don't I don't know if it was if it was true. It it makes sense. I mean, who knows? I don't know. I I'm sure it was very difficult for her to lose her firstborn. Near those those last days for her, it was it was difficult, more difficult for her to talk. So we didn't have the conversations that we did at one time. So I really don't know where she was in her mind. I know I can tell you that she died with um, at least a good two thirds of the family around her around her bed. We're we're a tight Italian family, and you know everybody was there, and she got to leave this world how she came in with everybody around her. Wow, that's, yeah, and and you said like as you said she was in a hospital. I I'm curious too, like even though she couldn't speak, I wonder if she had you know end of life dreams or visions you know with your father. 
that she just couldn't speak about, you know, um, to give her comfort. Very possible. Wow. Very possible. So interesting. Wow. Thank you for like opening up and, and sharing about, you know, your own grief. Um, have you ever had any dreams of anyone yeah, who's passed you were gonna away? You're going to ask me that because that's what it's all about, right? <laughs> yeah. And I'm, and I'm the crazy one who can tell you, I don't remember dreams. Oh, I know what? you're, you're <laughs> supposed to, you are supposed to dream and you're supposed to remember about dreaming. I know that. I rarely, 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 rarely do I ever remember a dream. I remember growing up as a kid, and they used to say, if, you, if you're falling off a cliff and you hit the bottom, you're not supposed to wake up. Well, I've hit the bottom a couple of times, and I'm still here. I have to break that fallacy. That's right, and that's why we're here on the podcast to do that with all sorts of dreams, not just grief dreams. <laughs> So you haven't had a dream of anyone. Have you ever heard of uh, people having dreams of the bereaved that you that you serve? It's a good question. Have you ever asked? Um, <laughs> I have asked. Most of my stories that I get from from individuals and in in support groups are around you know memories, mm-hmm. but not necessarily dream memories, and and I wonder if that's because people are afraid to discuss those kind of things. You are, um, yeah. I might, I'm, I have a support group this evening. Hmm. I might bring that up just to find out what I can get for you. <laughs> Report back to you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but you're absolutely right. A lot of people hold this stuff in because they don't want people to change a meeting or feel judged. And a lot of people who have shared have gotten bad advice or bad comments from others and you know sometimes they're well-meaning but it just it's not what they wanted and so yeah they definitely keep a lot of this stuff in so and, yeah and i think that's i think that's true josh for for bereavement in general and grief in general we're afraid to say things on both sides of the fence yeah. as as the bereaved i'm afraid to say things because i'm going to upset somebody and as someone who cares about the bereaved I'm not going to bring anything up because I don't want to bring any bad feelings up when in actuality, the bereaved want to talk about their loved ones. Yeah. And they have, and a lot of people can have questions that, you know, they want to ask, but they're too nervous to ask. In different, exactly. yeah, so yeah, it's, uh, but that's, and, you know, I, and, and you're bringing that, that point up and, and on my desk here because I'm, I'm doing mindfulness and meditation at both of our our gardens here, I'm doing one at Anderson Gardens, which is um, a beautiful, beautiful Japanese garden here in here in Illinois, um, in Rockford, and another one at at Clem Arboretum. But it's to accept, if I can make that full circle back around with mindfulness, it's it's being able to take those feelings and emotions that we're having, to be with them, and not to be judgmental with them. Just just to accept them as they are. And that's that's sometimes the hard part because we want to place labels on everything in society today. We want to say that, oh, I'm having this feeling and that's a bad feeling, so I shouldn't have it. When in actuality, mindfulness accepts and just acknowledges this is what you're feeling and that's okay. That's nice. That's really nice. And so I look forward to hearing you said your response to that because most of those people probably have had a dream. Um, we'll ask. Yeah, we'll and ask. also your family. Like, have you ever asked your family if they've had a dream? Of I have not. Yeah, have not. Because hmm, maybe just because you don't dream, they might have. You know what's interesting? Just on a side note, <laughs> even family members will not share their dreams because they don't want other family members to get jealous that they didn't have a dream. Is that interesting? Oh, that I I believe that. Yeah, I believe that, <laughs> and and it becomes this big vicious circle. Yeah, and and then we wonder why people can't grieve properly. Mm-hmm. That's true. Because we're all afraid to. Yeah. So mindfulness journaling. It's an ongoing. Asking. It's an ongoing <laughs> challenge. That's that's for for sure. That's right. It keeps but, opening up. But there's to... there's so many different ways, and I think there are probably just as many ways to to deal with grief and loss as there are people on the planet. Yeah. It's all, it's all very unique as you're saying. And you know, like there's just different tools out there, but you know, as you were saying, mindfulness, you know, journaling, very good, good places to start. 
uh, mm-hmm. if you're dealing with that stuff. And then also say asking unnormal questions to them, like grief dreams is an unnormal question that a lot of people can share that, you know, they're maybe hiding uh, from the world um, or other, you know, experiences they've had. So we'd like to end uh, the show with uh, asking you, since you haven't had a dream, what dream would you want to have if you could tonight uh, about someone who has passed away, either your father, or Amy, uh, someone like that? That's a good question. Well, Amy's my Amy's my my daily dreamer because um, she was one of those lively kind of kind of girls. Her heart was on her sleeve, but she cared for everybody she touched. And and I and I keep her in in thought um, directly in front of me as I'm sitting here talking to you is a peacock feather, and that was one of her one of her symbols. Um, so I I keep her right there. And just to the left of that is a is a photo of my father. And my father, funny we should be talking about this as we're coming up on the Preakness. My father liked betting on the ponies. So if if I could have a have a dream, it would be that my father would tell me who's gonna win the Preakness Ooh. on Saturday. <laughs> he knew he knew how to bet the ponies. He knew how to do it. Oh, I like he that. Didn't help. He didn't he didn't come through for the Derby. <laughs> It was, it, was, <laughs> it was interesting because my mother told me to, to bet on, on a horse. My my best friend Brian told me to bet on a horse, and I bet on a horse. And had I put them in the right order between the three of us, we would have won the trifecta. Wow. So maybe my father will, will come through and, and let us know who we're supposed to bet for. Wow. What would you do with the money if you won? <laughs> gonna share it with you, Josh. <laughs> Where'd you help out, help fair, out your podcast? Right? <laughs> your podcast. All right, you now heard that, that I, folks. Now that I know, now that I know what it is. <laughs> you see uh, Andrew on the news, and he won the thing. You know, uh, grief dreams is getting a cut of that. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. That's beautiful. And did he have like? Would you want him like talking to you through a phone, or like what place would you want that news to be given to? It's a good question. I, I, I think just just. I don't have too much more time here. He's only got a day and a half to let me know something. <laughs> well, um, it's going to be tonight, right? <laughs> it's gonna be... I, it might be tonight. Um, it, it would have been nice while I was doing mindfulness and meditation out in the out in the uh, the Japanese gardens this week. But you know, I, I missed that, or I was too busy, you know, leading people and facilitating the group to to actually sit down and listen. So hopefully, it'll it'll come tonight or tomorrow. And so, what what? Like, what's the scenario? Like, would you want to be at the Derby or with the horses? Would you want to be in your house? Like, where would you want your this dream to take place? What would be really cool is if it were to happen at Pimlico in in Maryland, um, which is which is where the horses race. That's that's another tie-in story. I did I did two years of of seminary at St. Mary's in Baltimore, Maryland, and my second year. As I was finishing the second year, uh, my dad came out because I was finishing school the week of the Derby, or not of the Derby, but of the uh, the Preakness. Um, so we went to the we went to the track together. Mm. So, you know, that would be a, an appropriate place for it to all to happen. That's nice. And it's a nice little bonding moment. Um, you know, betting isn't always bad, right? <laughs> no, it is. Bonding no, can happen through betting. It's <laughs> a lot of neat, a lot of neat things can happen. Um, and and that's that's a funny one too. Now that I'm just thinking, and you're trying to wrap this up. When my father died, we had a funeral director who said you have to have flowers for his casket, and I said, no, we don't. My father would would just roll over if he knew that he had flowers on his casket. It just wasn't him. But we had to have some idea, so I got with my siblings and my mother, and we decided that the appropriate thing would be to grab the three flowers of the Triple Crown. Um, so we got the the red roses from from the Derby. We got the uh, the the Black Eyed Susan for the Preakness, and I had to look up the flower for the Belmont Stakes. But it is a white carnation, and those were the three flowers that made this beautiful. Um, arrangement the spray on his on his casket and we threw in a horseshoe oh, wow. 
That's beautiful. It's like it's it's interesting as we continue to talk about even what dream you'd want. Like you're getting these extra details. I'm getting these extra details from you, just like on who your father was and the bonding that the bonds that you guys had and the memories um, sure. of all that. Because you know, like when we first talked, you didn't mention anything about a horseshoe, you know, <laughs> rose-colored thing. But it's amazing what what comes up. And I wish you said like we had more time to uh, to discuss, you know, more about your father and that that bond that you guys shared. But it seems like he was a, a good guy in your eyes. And he made you feel loved. And I think that's an amazing, yeah, amazing feeling for a son. So, you know, good job. Um, and thank you for coming on for, you know, and all the work that you're doing as you move forward you. Um, in your own grief journey, but also, you know, and helping others. I, and I look forward to seeing you uh, once again. Um, Please. Yes, at the conference or even can, uh, next time in I'm, Canada. <laughs> well, how far are you from, from, well, the next time I'm in Canada? I'm in Canada the end of June. Oh, that's not that's not far at all. So you you you're coming to Ontario. I will be I will be at King's for for the international work group on death, dying, and bereavement. Yeah, I'm only like probably an hour and a half away from yeah. uh, from London. June 24th to the 29th, I will be at King's. Yeah, so let's set that up. Um, Very cool. All right, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and so before you go, um, we always like to sort of ask: Do you have any uh, social media handles that you can uh, share, or even the website to the conference um, where people can find that? I do have the website to the conference right off the right off the top of my head. It is www.uwlax.edu forward slash dgb. Nice. Okay, so uh, people check that out. Um, and once again, um, we. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this uh, this podcast with uh, Reverend Andrew, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just really amazed that we got to be able to speak about uh, everything here and the conference itself. And so, uh, just to wrap up uh, for our stuff, uh, you can check out griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic. And if you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams Facebook group, or you can check us out on Instagram and Twitter. Also, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast and you have some cool dreams you want to share, we're, uh, we're always open to having you on. So uh, with love and gratitude from us to you. Introduce myself. You have introduced yourself. This is a very good conversation.